Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. It took a while, but the destinies of Donald Trump and the Supreme Court of the United States are now intertwined like a braided rope. This week, it became evident that Trump's political destiny rests in the hands of the high court, which includes three justices that he appointed. The justices heard argument in an appeal of Colorado's decision to knock Trump off the ballot under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment based on his constitutional betrayal of January 6, 2021. The case presented the prospect of shutting down the entire Trump era with a single stroke of the court's pen. But that prospect seemed vanishingly remote after the argument, in which the court seemed nearly unanimous in its desire to reverse the Colorado Supreme Court, though far from united in the reasons for doing so. Of arguably even greater importance to Trump's efforts to avoid justice and return to the Oval Office next January was the unanimous decision of the D.C. Circuit panel rejecting Trump's outlandish claims of immunity from criminal prosecution. The opinion, authored by Republican and Democratic appointees, was decisive, comprehensive, and so firmly constructed that it may leave nothing for the Supreme Court to add. The Court of Appeals gave Trump a short trigger to seek a stay in the High Court, which he must do by today, February 12th. And we are likely to know within two weeks whether the court will take the case, almost certainly to reach the same result, but with the gift of more time to Trump, or let the D.C. Circuit have the last word. The practical difference for Trump could be pivotal, potentially even spelling the difference between a trial or no trial in 2024 in the election interference case before Judge Tanya Chutkin. To discuss if and how the court will approach two cases, each of which casts an enormous shadow over the 2024 election, I'm really pleased to welcome three of the best court analysts in the country. And they are. Amy Howe, the brains behind the incisive blog, Howe on the Court, which covers the Supreme Court and the judiciary in, in her words, mostly plain English. Amy served as the editor and reporter and really co-creator for SCOTUS blog until 2016, and that revolutionized Supreme Court coverage. Before returning to full-time blogging, she also served as counsel in over two dozen merits cases at the Supreme Court and argued two cases there. Amy, thanks for coming back to Talking Feds. Thanks for having me back. Daya Lithwick, a senior editor at Slate, where she writes about courts and the law and hosts the excellent Slate legal podcast, Amicus. She's also an MSNBC contributor and author of the New York Times bestselling book, Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America, which we covered in a previous Talking Book series. Daya, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Harry. And Steve Vladek, the Charles Allen Wright Chair in Federal Courts at the University of Texas Law School and CNN Supreme Court Analyst. He's argued over a dozen cases before the U.S. Supreme Court, Texas Supreme Court, and various other courts, and is the co-author of the leading national security law and counterterrorism law casebooks. His book, 
The Shadow Docket, how the Supreme Court uses stealth rulings to amass power and undermine the Republic, was a New York Times bestseller. Thanks for coming back to Talking Feds to talk about the court. Thanks, Harry. Great to be with you. All right. So let's start with yesterday's hugely anticipated oral argument in the Colorado case, reviewing the Colorado Supreme Court's decision to order Trump off the ballot under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. The consensus seemed very strong, extraordinarily strong, really, including all of us, that Trump's side was going to win handily with seven to nine votes and that the court would order Colorado to reinstate him on the ballot. Leading up to it, there were a lot of commentators, very well-respected commentators, who thought that there was a real shot at affirmance and the air leaked out of that balloon pretty quickly once the argument started. What were they missing, or why did a hard case seem to turn before our eyes into an easy one? They had bought into the Supreme Court's repeated insistence that all it does is law, and sort of missed the rather significant historical fact that the Supreme Court does politics. Not necessarily partisan politics, but institutional politics, and situational politics, and uh, a word that came up a lot in the oral argument, consequentialist politics. I think everything that certainly Dolly and I have written, and I, I think Amy may agree with this, although she's so much more careful than, than I am about what she thinks, right? I, I don't think any of us expected it to be an easy case for an affirmance. I was not surprised at all at how yesterday's argument went. If there's a surprise, it's only that so many people who supposedly know a lot about the court could have been so wrong about it. No matter how optimistic you were, you know, one thing that was always, I think, in everyone's mind was that for the voters to win, they had to run the table. They had to win on each of these arguments. The idea that the president is an officer, that the presidency is in office, that Trump engaged in insurrection, you know, each and every one of them. And that one state can keep him off the ballot. That one state can keep him off the ballot, that the oath that the president takes is somehow the same as the oath that the other officers take. And that's something that the court never even got to yesterday. But, you know, the idea that the challengers could run the table sort of layered on top of Steve's comments about them thinking not just about the text of Section 3, but what flows from their decision. I think a lot of people were, were justifiably skeptical. I would just add, you know, if, to the extent that Steve has become one of the masters of the term, the shadow docket, I think there's another docket and it's the hopium docket. <laughs> Ooh, next book title. And this one falls squarely into the hopium docket. And I think that for non-cynical reasons, I just finished taping my show with Noah Bookbinder from Crew, who... <laughs> This had to be done. It had to be done. The court as an institution had to reckon with January 6th and reckon with whether Section 3 of the 14th Amendment means what it said to mean. And so I think it's not a trivial thing that a lot, a lot of people who wanted to say this case was going to succeed on the merits 
did so for the right reasons, yeah. <laughs> which is this was really important. And also, I think every one of us is agreeing that this would have been beyond the biggest swing the court ever took. And there was no way this court was going to take a swing like that. So I'm for the hopium docket. But I also just think the commentators really, I think, split among the realists and the people who said this is imperative and necessary and exigent and it should happen. I mean, remember where the idea, not not the idea of challenging Trump's eligibility to run for office, but certainly the movement got a lot of momentum in sort of August of last year when Will Bode and Michael Stokes Paulson, who are both members of the Federalist Society, published this 100 plus page article outlining why Trump would not be eligible under Section 3. And I think a lot of people sort of glommed onto that as well. Like, look, these people even say that he's not eligible. And I think, I mean, what, what this really comes down to, back to the sort of Dahlia's hopium docket, which I'm totally stealing for my next book. I think what it really comes down to, Harry, is Dahlia's point about folks who look at the court pragmatically and sort of as realists and folks who have this idealized vision of the court's institutional role. And I think that there are actually a lot of folks on the right who had persuaded themselves perhaps so that they could accept so many of the things that the Supreme Court has done in the last five to 10 years, that this court really was the idealized form. And when the court is on your side, in most of the big cases, maybe you can entertain that delusion. But the reality is that, you know, this court is a ruthlessly political institution. And that has never, to me, been a nefarious point, right? It has just been an essential point for understanding how the court approaches its job. And what it really does, and this is something I, I wrote on Thursday, what it really ought to do is actually undermine the story that the conservative justices and their defenders have been telling for the last decade, that what makes this particular court especially principled is its unshakable, unwavering fidelity to sort of one true principle of legal rectitude. That's never what they're doing. And this case is just a really good example of that. And let me follow up a bit on just this point and, and your distinction, Steve, between being political and maybe being political and, you know, being pro-Trump, anti-Biden versus having a sense of the court's politics and their own culture. The word that kept coming up at our argument, consequences, consequences, were going to really sway the court or, or they were going to focus on it. The gist of the people who were predicting reversal was they just won't let this happen, notwithstanding. And then and on the hopium level, of course, you go through, just as Steve says, the kind of textual analysis, word by word, what about insurrection, What and, and you seem to be able to get to the end point. But uh, the court wasn't, I think, starting there. The court was starting at the place they would be if they were to affirm, and that just seemed anathema to them. I just want to serve up what is, I think, latent in what Steve's saying, that the court has always been political. I think you mean by that way, way back, and that at least in certain big cases, it has a role that's different from what we normally think of courts as doing. They didn't. They don't go rationale and figure out the bottom line. Here they first really, I think, decided this just can't happen. Does that seem illegitimate? I think Steve endorses the idea. Does that both seem part and parcel of what the court does and in a case at least of this magnitude, perfectly appropriate for the court to do? 
I mean, I think it's just descriptively accurate that, you know, if you look at Bush v. Gore, you decide the result and then you figure out the rationale, right? This is how it's done. It sounds like we all accept the proposition that the court, I saw that as two hours and change of the court trying to figure out how to get the outcome they wanted. That was the the agony, right? Are we going to go with the officer thing? Are we going to go with something, you know, that was basically dropped out of the argument in the briefing that, you know, maybe we don't want this trial court determination of insurrection to be the baseline from which we all operate the principle that Steve mentioned? Are we going to let one state decide for the rest of the country whether Trump is on the ballot? I mean, you can pick your lane, but I think the world after Thursday sorts into the people who see that as a two-plus-hour exercise in finding an off-ramp and the people who think that the court was in good faith trying to solve the problem, the constitutional question before it. And I just think it's very hard for me as a realist in in the vein that Steve is describing to say this was the court doing much other than trying you know, in the fashion of King Kong at the top of the building to just like pick on a a rationale that could get five votes. I mean, that was the drama there, right? It wasn't who was going to win, but you had Alito seemed to like the hold office versus run office argument. Gorsuch and Jackson were probing the POTUS, an officer of the United States, not to be confused and good luck with that, (laughs) with the office under the United States. What I was struck by during the argument, I mean, Dolly is absolutely right. The Chief Justice asked one question that I actually thought was a hard question for Jonathan Mitchell. And so I had a brief moment of like, huh, is this going to be an interesting argument? And then it all went downhill. But what was striking to me is just how shameless it was. I mean, there is a point at which Justice Alito is asking a question of Jonathan Mitchell. This is after Alito has twice made arguments for Mitchell that Mitchell refused to make. And Alito basically says... Is it just that the consequences are going to be so problematic or are those consequences in some way part of your legal argument? Like, help me make the consequentialist point also legally relevant. He literally said the quiet part out loud. Like, we are looking for a a, a justification legally to avoid the consequences that, again, not just the conservatives. I mean, Justice Kagan, right, was on the same sort of beating the same drum. And, you know, I, I guess I'll just say, like, I don't know that you have to like the notion that the court is a political institution to believe that the real issue is its sort of self-denial that it's a political institution. And if it's going to be a political institution in the really, 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 really big cases, it ought to accept the consequences of being a political institution in the cases that it doesn't think of the same way, but many of us do. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we stir up a discussion around cocktails. Make your own or buy them ready to drink. There's no question that mixing a delicious cocktail is truly an art form. Precise measurements and proportions, creative substitutions, the presentation itself, and even the speed of delivery are all factors that earn great mixologists the reputations they deserve. But for people who may not stock things like triple sec and bitters, 
a ready-to-drink cocktail that's pre-measured and mixed just might be worth pulling off the shelf. Ready-to-drink cocktails don't necessarily give you the satisfaction of creating a drink from scratch, but they do offer up undeniable convenience, removing the complexity of recipes, the burden of acquiring ingredients, and the time it takes to measure, pour, mix, crush, stir, and of course, repeat. Plus, you still have the ability to customize your drink, adding a splash of this or that, here or there, to your liking. So, whether you're into customization or convenience, ready-to-drink cocktails give you a little bit of both. Now, who says you can't have your cocktail and drink it too? So what's better, customization or convenience? Probably depends on the situation. It can be fun crafting your own cocktail, but when time is short, ready-to-drink cocktail sure does hit the spot. Either way, you can grab all the ingredients you need for a great craft cocktail or get your ready-to-go favorite at Total Wine & More. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. All right, well, let me zero in a little more on consequences. It really was striking how much that word uh, came up and really how little the argument was about Trump and even the key terms in Section uh, 3. Kagan seemed to assume if we affirm, that means every state he's off the ballot. And Roberts seemed to assume that at a minimum, it's a crazy situation with many dominoes kind of falling and maybe retribution by pro-Trump states. I wouldn't have thought that was a necessary outcome. And if you do think it, okay, I can see why that makes the court swallow very hard. But isn't there a way to affirming here that wouldn't completely bring chaos to the entire national map? Or do you agree with Kagan's premise, basically? The sort of reflexive answer is, look, there's different candidates on different ballots in the states all the time. We have third-party candidates that make the ballot. So, like, the idea that chaos will ensue, we know that's demonstrably incorrect. We also know it's demonstrably incorrect that Colorado would be deciding for the rest of the country, right? The court would have said the Constitution allows Colorado to do what it did, and other states would decide. So I don't know that the sort of race to the bottom, you know, this is going to throw the election into chaos for everybody in every state. I I'm surprised how much salience that had. But I think I also want to add a gloss. Steve and I were actually talking about this this morning, but I, I also think it is quite an astounding proposition to say, and then... Greg Abbott is going to knock Joe Biden <laughs> off the ballot, right? And right. then Ron DeSantis is going to file vexatious lawsuits. All these bad faith actors will do bad faith things. Right, because of Hunter Biden's laptop. And I mean, Justice Alito was saying, you know, those kinds of hypos with the straight face. And I just want to point out two things. One, that comes just perilously close to being that sort of menacing... <laughs> You know, don't let these bad people weaponize, right, the, the legal system. That's that's what that is, right? That's Trumpism writ large. And when it's coming from inside the House, when the justices are making those threats, like, okay, what are you going to do? I Nothing we could do to stop, you know, red states from throwing Biden. And so I just want to sit in the utter insanity that that is, like, materially relevant. But the other piece of that that I just think is really fascinating and, like, to my mind, staggering 
is that those consequentialist arguments about chaos throughout the land had no place in the Dobbs opinion, had no place in Bruin. In fact, the court told us in Bruin not to think about how this is going to land on the ground. Oh, and they wouldn't think about it. It's not their job to think about it even more, right? Wait, but there's one more problem, which is even if you could divine some plausible reason why Bruin and Dobbs are not cases in which it's appropriate to account for those consequences, and this one is, even if that existed. If you're worried about chaos, what's more chaotic, right? Resolving the Section 3 question on the merits now or waiting until you have Democrats in the House on January 6, 2025, who refuse to accept electoral votes in states that everyone thinks former President Trump won on the ground that they don't believe he's eligible to serve. And imagine a world in which Democrats somehow control both chambers of Congress in January 2025, and they throw out enough Trump electors to sort of throw the election to the House. We really think that that's better, right? And so if we assume this is going to end the way that we, I think everyone came out of the argument think it's going to end, it's a remarkably short-term consequentialist opinion or ruling, right, as opposed to a, you know, sort of removing all the oxygen from the room and trying to actually prevent this from flaring up again. Like, if anything, this could be a bigger problem come, you know, November, December, January. The Colorado lawyer representing the Colorado Secretary of State, the Solicitor General, Shannon Stevenson, had an answer that was much along the lines of what Harry and Dahlia have developed here. She said, this is a feature, not a bug. Different states are going to have different processes. But that came so late in the argument. And I was homesick, so I was not in the courtroom. But it just felt on the radio like all of the energy had left the room at that point, that the train had left the station. And there was essentially at that point nothing that she could have said that would have changed their minds. I mean, those 15 minutes, they were disengaged. But to Steve's point, I just want to add one other thing. It wasn't just Alito. It was Roberts giving the parade of horribles. And the obvious answer to it is, not so long as this court sits. That's why we have a Supreme Court. To his credit, Murray said that. I mean, he's he's gotten a lot of, I think, unfair criticism for his performance. Listen, Clarence Darrow wasn't going to do better <laughs> with, with that court on, on this issue. That's the point, by the way. It was DOA, don't you think? I mean, there's the old story about John Roberts' first argument where yeah. John uh, Roberts loses and he calls the client to say, we lost 9 nothing," And, you know, why did we lose 9 nothing? Because there were only nine justices. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> as, as exactly. you said, like Clarence Darrow. He was walking into a buzzsaw yesterday. But, you know, Murray, to his credit, said, yes, that this court sits, right? Like the, the way to resolve it is, is that this court sits. And I actually think that's the right answer. If it's the wrong answer, what a terrible position we're in as a country, right? I mean, this also gets to the complete sort of lunacy that Jonathan Mitchell is up there arguing against departmentalism. But putting that aside for the moment, I mean, first of all, the notion that Justice Alito is going to somehow be completely counted to submission by non-mutual offensive collateral estoppel, <laughs> right? No need to define that, listeners. Don't worry. But a doctrine that, by the way, the Supreme Court has carved out a debatably principled exception for any suit involving the federal government they could just carve out another one, right? I mean, like, there were answers to all these questions. The justices didn't want to hear them. Any of the justices, not just right. the conservative ones. You know, maybe Justice Jackson on a couple of things, although she sort of, I'm not sure if Jackson's going to end up sitting in the same tune, but that's the only one I'm not sure about. 
that was one thing that really, I wasn't in the room yesterday, but that really surprised me was listening to it. You know, sometimes the justices come in and they look, you know, in a case of this magnitude, they look kind of grim, like they're really ready for battle. And at least on the phone, it sounded like kind of an academic exercise. So Justice Kagan at one point, like, oh, we're going to go do officer stuff later. Yeah, right, right, right. It felt that way to me, too, that, that from the start, look, there's one breakdown, liberal conservative. There's another breakdown of what you could call team players or institutionalists, somewhat amenable to that versus others. I think we're not surprised to think of Kagan, say, is in that camp. Jackson surprised a little ultimately by being in that camp, but I think she is. And I think Roberts has a pretty good hand in front of him for trying to find consensus in the sense of, you know, justices with goodwill thinking we got to do this. But of all the different, what were there, seven, eight, nine theories trotted out? Are they actually going to be able to coalesce around one? Because if there are five concurring opinions, it's still a mess, right? So I think this is why Justice Kagan's first question to Murray was basically claiming the theory. Why should one state have the ability to decide a national election, basically? Leaving aside that one state often decides national elections, you know, <laughs> she knows that point. But, like, she floated that on purpose, right? And I think, like, that is the off-ramp that does the least violence to other cases, right? To federal court's ability to try to enforce Section 3 against a former president, to the ability of states to enforce Section 3 against non-presidential candidates, right, against state and, you know, congressional candidates. I mean, that would be the narrowest way out. Good luck finding a textual basis for that, everybody, right? I mean, maybe it's in the penumbras of Section 3 of the 14th <laughs> Amendment, but that just gets back to where we started. But you use that word national, although it goes to the point I had raised before of like, well, is it really national? You know, if they assume that it prescribes a national result. No, no, it's, of course it's not. But I took that as Justice Kagan's way of basically telling everyone to her right, hey, y'all, I'll go in on this one. If we don't go down this, he's not an officer, he didn't take the right oath, you need an implementing statute, like none of that, right? I'll meet you on this. And then the question becomes whether there's going to be horse trading with the immunity case. Well, let's get to that. In fact, it's a perfect segue. Yeah, go ahead, Daya. I was just going to say one beat before we do that. It is a perfect segue, which I'm about to really maliciously ruin. But I think that <laughs> I actually had the sense that that's a little bit of what Justice Jackson was doing, too, which is I'm going to claim the originalist reading in which the officers, as contemplated, don't include the president for exactly the reason, slightly higher stakes that Steve just laid out, which is, OK, if we could coalesce around the idea that the only president to whom this applies ever in history are George Washington and Donald J. Trump— a, it's an originalist opinion uh, that'll get some votes, and B, it does the least damage. And I think it was a version of this sort of strategic, right? I mean, I think Sotomayor was the most unwilling to play ball if the game was, we are going to get nine votes for something because 28% of the population approves of us. And I think that there's a way in which both Justice Jackson and Justice Kagan were doing that sort of pragmatic move of how can I tell everybody some theory of this that both decides the case and also decides almost nothing. 
You know, I think that's exactly right. And in particular, I don't even know if they'll go uh, on the text much. Of There are ways to get around it. All the talk about what Congress did in Griffin's case, et cetera, you know, really just cleaves this off as Dewey generous. I'm getting a goofy grin from Professor Vladek, the Charles Allen Wright professor. Is that agreement or derision? No, no, it's it just, it, I mean, the whole argument... It, to me, the most lighthearted moment of all was when Chief Justice Roberts had to intervene to clarify, not for the benefit of anyone in the courtroom, but for the benefit of the non-lawyers listening at home, that all these references to, quote, term, term limits, limits, unquote, <laughs> was a reference to a 1995 Supreme Court decision called term limits and not to the concept of term limits, which might be the first instance in the court's history of a justice saying something during oral argument for the purpose of people listening live. <laughs> this was never about Section 3, at least in the way that we as lawyers think about Section 3. This was never about, like, answering the hard textual questions or the historical questions. Even Jonathan Mitchell didn't actually, like, dig in on the presidential value of Griffin's case. <laughs> it was just like... Hey, what should the rule be? It's like a common law court resolving an issue of first impression when there's no law that binds them. That's it, exactly. And it goes back to the initial realism versus hopium uh, split here, right? So having had the transition completely trammeled, let's, let's just limp ahead anyway to the immunity uh, opinion. Possibly the argument yesterday was the second most important development in Trump land. Well, here we have merits, and Steve and Dahlia, among others, you see it as pretty masterful, airtight. We were waiting and wondering if there was division, the very opposite. They were all together so much so that it was a per curiam. Can you just explain how it differed from what we might have expected and how sort of, you know, strong a lucite box you seem to think it is? I guess I would just say it turned out that what we thought was, you know, Judge Henderson, like pumping the brakes, was an effort to craft a per curiam airtight opinion. And like, it is certainly true. I think that it could have been written three weeks earlier, but okay. It was a very, very solid opinion. And I think it choked off the possibility of running out the clock at the D.C. Circuit. And I think it very much set up, this is going to go fast now. And the last thing I'll say is I think that it's hard for me to believe, Amy and Steve will correct me, that there are five votes to reverse that on the merits. The position you would have to take for Trump to win that would be doctrinally, constitutionally, pragmatically intolerable. And so I just think it was a masterful opinion insofar as if things go the way they should, there's nothing left to say at the Supreme Court. I did a panel a couple of weeks ago with some people who know way more about the court than I do. And one of them said the court wasn't going to touch it at all. I think one of them said that the court would take it but not fast track it. I mean, my best guess would be that they fast track it they hear oral argument, they do something along the lines of what they did with the Section 3 case. They, you know, they do it all in a month and then they issue a quick opinion and the trial can go forward depending on the results of this other case that's lurking out there. Just to sort of put the math out there, because I think we're all we're all doing it in our heads, right? I mean, it's not just that you would need five votes on the merits, it's that you would need five votes for a stay. 
And so is it possible that there are four votes to grant cert, but not a fifth vote for a stay? I mean, theoretically, yes. I don't see any universe in which Chief Justice Roberts would let that happen, right, where the court would grant cert, but also let the trial go forward like that. I mean, is it possible the court issues a stay and then just sort of sits back and lets Trump have 90 slash 150 days to file his cert petition? Theoretically, yes. Is this court going to do that? No. So, you know, I would say the odds are somewhere over 90% of it being one of two things, of it being a denial of a stay, at which point the cert petition could still be filed, but would be practically moot. Or what Amy said, or treating the stay application as a cert petition, granting it, expediting it. And I think that, this is going to be very specific, but I think which one of those they choose is up to Brett Kavanaugh. I mean, this is his court, right? He was not, you know, he served with Henderson for, gosh, what, 12 years as colleagues? Is he willing to let that panel have the last word or not? Like, I assume he's he's inclined to affirm. I assume there are seven or eight votes on the court to affirm. And then at that point, it's a question of, you know, is it our responsibility to say so or not? I don't think John Roberts will feel like it's the court's obligation to say so. This is the same John Roberts who is willing to let same-sex marriage become legal by denying cert, right? I think this is why, to me, it's it's really what does Brett Kavanaugh want as between which of those two outcomes we get? And if I can just say one other thing, I think it's so interesting because two pieces of this. One is, and I think Rick Hassan wrote a version of this piece. I've heard Mike Waldman say a version of this, which is then you get the Solomonic grand bargain, right? The court giveth, the court taketh away. Trump wins Colorado, he loses immunity, and the court gets to look like a moderate centrist court. And I think that's very attractive, right? When you have approval ratings and other scandals kind of ricocheting around the building. But I just think I want to make a substantive point, which is it is fascinating to look at the question Steve just raised, which is, does the court have the, I use this word advisedly, humility to just grant a summary affirmance, to just say, as the court has done in many other Trumpy cases, like, eh, we're not touching this, right? Court got it right, and we move on. And it's fascinating if you pair the humility question with what we saw happen in the arguments on Thursday, right? Because this is a court that nobody has ever accused of having humility, institutional humility, wanting to be out of the conversation so bad that it's like the the blurry lines, like when, when you know, Bugs Bunny runs away and all you can see <laughs> is the lines of like, we're not here. We didn't, you know, we had nothing to do with this. And I, I just think... Hold the tension of a court that for the first time in the 20 whatever years that I have been covering it says yesterday, we don't know what an insurrection is. We don't have the capacity to define what that means as a constitutional matter. We can't do anything. We can't stave off bad actors from, you know, filing vexatious suits, right? That is the most humble court in the history of the Roberts Court. So my kind of line between the two cases is now you have an opportunity to show yet more humility, right? And it's going to depend, as Steve says, on whether Brett Kavanaugh kind of feels that he needs to get the last word in. We're talking about the difference in, is it a one sentence order that says, you know, the application for a stay is denied, right? Or is it a, you know, 25 page opinion that says why the DC circuit was right? 
one of those is going to take at least six weeks to two months longer than the other. Plus a possible dissent, right? I think the D.C. Circuit stuff brought out a lot of crazies on the left in the sort of Karen Henderson is trying to sabotage us camp. I never bought that. I think a three-judge panel sometimes take a little while to reach consensus, even on things where they know they have to hustle. And it's kind of remarkable, actually, that they got Judge Henderson to endorse every single word of that opinion and the structured mandate to prevent President Trump from delaying things. Like, that's not for nothing in this story. Henderson had dissented earlier from one of the orders expediting this case. And here she is not saying a word, you know, to the contrary about this expedited mandate structure. So I think two things are true, right? I think the D.C. Circuit did just about the best we could have hoped for in the circumstance, even if maybe that Dolly is right, that they should have done it just a little bit faster. And two, you know, I think the real question is whether yesterday's argument changes the calculus for the Supreme Court when it comes to the two choices now before it, right? Like, are you now even further emboldened to deny the stay because you've gotten eight, one or nine, nothing ruling coming on ballot access, right? Like, I, I actually think if anything, yesterday increases the odds that the court just stays out of the January 6th prosecution in, in toto. As a sort of paired entry, let me just quickly for listeners know we tape on Friday, but today when it's released is the actual day that Trump has to file his petition for stay, which as Diane and Amy point out, might be uh, treated as a petition for cert. Amy, notwithstanding your own um, humility, you really do know this court day in and day out better than us would-be scholars or whatever. What's your gut or your feel of them as an institution? Because, look, it's been served up. On the one hand, we get to say last we're the Supreme Court. On the other, like a hole in the head, comma, how we need this case. Even if you're just thinking from their own most parochial standpoint, there are cross-cutting considerations. Steve uh, adroitly says 90% chance of one or two things happening. I really think it's a very tough and close call, but just give us your thoughts of where the court might be. If I were a betting person, which I'm not, I would bet that they are going to fast track it and hear oral argument. Issue a stay, fast track it and hear oral argument. I mean, Jack Smith, when he back in December, asked the justices to take up the case with cert before judgment, said, you know, we want you to decide it by the end of the term. They can certainly, as we saw with the Section 3 cases we've seen time and again, they can certainly move quickly when they want to. If the D.C. Circuit can issue this 57-page opinion in a month, I think they can. And, you know, going to Dahlia's point of humility, I think there will be a group that will feel like this is something that the Supreme Court needs to weigh in on. Although for sure half the country is going to hate it. You know, they really now twice will have really sort of been in the muck. I think that there's an apples oranges problem here, which is we treat these cases as though they are equally exigent because it is easy to say if you are in the camp that there's a shot clock, right, (laughs) which there is a shot clock, right? There's a time, huge time element here, which is why you get like the the good people at Just Security doing that like 17 alternate timeline like that I literally read six times and still couldn't understand, (laughs) but I'm sure Steve like dreams in those terms. But like It's a right brain, left brain thing. I mean, I like to think I'm as left brain as the next guy, but I couldn't figure out what they were doing with that decision tree. And that's, and there there are my limitations right there. But I I think I want to say that the exigency is two different things that we smush together, right? So one thing is 
Colorado needed to be decided because they have to print ballots, right? Because this is materially going to affect who is on what ballot in what state and how the election goes, right? The sense of exigency that a lot of people have, the reason they were angry at Judge Henderson, and I agree with Steve, this got really kind of venomous and personal. I think that people are angry because they want to have a criminal conviction of Donald Trump before the election. Like, that's the end game, right? That Mar-a-Lago is just a sinkhole and God knows what Alvin Bragg is doing, right? And E. Jean is a civil, whatever it is, there needs to be this case. There needs to be the win, right? And so the thing that animates all the anxiety is we need this one trial because we need a conviction and it can't happen next October, And so I just want to suggest that that's not an exigency that the Supreme Court feels. (laughs) Like, I don't think that is a thing. John Roberts worries very much about the Colorado ballot, but I think the fact that there is a significant number of Americans that would like to see a criminal conviction before election season begins in full, that is not a thing that is keeping members of the court up at night, I don't think. I think that's a fair point. And I've heard others make something related, which is Jack Smith could have brought this, he filed the indictment in August of 2023. This whole thing could have moved faster if they wanted to charge the former president. What is the, I think they say, the lack of floor planning on your part is not justifying an emergency on my part. You know, that's the sign of over John Roberts' desk. I agree with all of this. I think, once again, the problem for the court is at least largely of its own creation, which is that it has treated so many different things as emergencies that five, 10 years ago would never have been emergencies. <laughs> you would know. There's a really good book on this, I think. Yes. <laughs> There's a good book. It's been on the bestseller list for 200 years. Yeah. <laughs> It'll never go off. But I don't just mean in the context of emergency applications. This is a court that is granting certiorari before judgment to leapfrog federal courts of appeals on the merits, almost as much as every court in history prior to 2019 This is a court that is expediting cases, sometimes multiple times a term. The student loan cases last term were granted in February and decided by the end of the term. And so Amy's right, of course, and Dahlia's right, of course, that like you can tell a story about why there's no real compelling legal reason to expedite the Trump case. Again, like if the court had shown more restraint in the past, it would not look so, now I'm going to say partisan and not just political, right, if it were not to sort of move quickly in this context. Amy, let me go back to you again. So there's as close to a consensus as we get is that the court takes it and wants to expedite. Now, today, the motion for a stay is you've suggested they might treat it as a cert petition. Can you just walk us through, if you're trying to go lickety-split from uh, today to the issuance of an opinion with rough timelines, how it would work. At the Supreme Court, Trump would file, and we don't know exactly what he would file, he could file a a motion for a stay, a motion to put the D.C. Circuit's opinion on hold. He could file a stay and a petition for a review of the D.C. Circuit's opinion at the same time. And at that point, the Supreme Court would Almost certainly, they don't have to, but in these cases, I think we can guess that they would ask Jack Smith to file his response. Now, Jack Smith has already asked them to take this case up once, told them it was very important. So presumably, Jack Smith 
will file something that says, yes, you know, we think the D.C. Circuit's opinion was right, but we agree that you should weigh in. Or, you know, he might say he's very well represented. He's represented in the Supreme Court by Michael Dreeben, the former deputy solicitor general. And they might say, you know, you should summarily affirm. Or if you disagree with that, you can go ahead and take this case. And I would imagine it would be Smith who would suggest that the court fast track both the consideration of the petition and then the case itself, if review were granted. Let's just put it in a timeline. Smith has to respond a week, maybe. I mean, what's super warp speed timing for that? They could do it faster than that if they wanted. The justices have a conference, I think a week from today, February 16th. So they could consider it that day. If, you know, we could all know at this time next week, conceivably. That would be Friday, listeners. It's the chief who calls for a response, right? Because it's coming from the D.C. Circuit. His norm in cases with even sort of any sort of plausible claim for it is like, you know, 36 to 72 hours for a response. So I suspect he'll have Smith respond by Wednesday. And Trump reply by Thursday? Weird little inside Supreme Court baseball. The rules never specifically say anything about the timing of replies. But yes, he gets a reply. So Amy's right that this Friday, as this drops, is the earliest we'll hear. I, I, one data point, just to sort of reinforce how the court's own behavior causes some of this mischief here. Just since the beginning of the October 2021 term, so just in the last two and a half years, there have been 11 different stay applications that the court treated as cert petitions and granted. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Right? And so I'm fairly ambivalent about whether a denial or a grant with expedited merits review is more likely. I think Amy is, is pushing me a bit toward the grant version of this. I don't think they'll grant a stay and then set a briefing schedule for cert. I think if they grant a stay, they will treat that as the cert grant because they'll only be granting a stay if five of them want to take the case on the merits. Why then have briefing on whether they should take the case on the merits? One quick question. Is it the chief himself that says this thing gets expedited? If it's a motion to expedite, it takes five votes, right? If it's the court on its own, my best guess is that it practically takes five votes, but that, you know, it probably doesn't get a formal vote. That unless someone really sort of digs in, a push to expedite won't be resisted. He refers it to the conference and everyone says we'll expedite, but I don't think he can do that on his own motion. But back to you, Ms. Howe. So, all right, it's the 19th. They've made a decision. They're going to take the case. What's a really warped speed merits briefing schedule and oral argument time? I think we can look back at, at Section 3, which the, in which the briefing was just over a month from the cert grant to the oral argument. They granted cert on January 5th. They heard oral argument on February 8th. Now, the justices have already released their calendar for March. It is chock full of cases. Relative to that Supreme Court, anyway. For them, exactly. They're, they're, hearing, they're hearing cases every day, two cases a day before lunch. Yes. There's technically one slot left on the calendar, but I don't think that they would put this case right after the Mifepristone case. Oh, oh why that would not? Be fun. Why not? Go big or go home, I see. <laughs> Basically, then they'd have to find a date. I assume that... They all had to literally like get out their planners and figure out during the recess when they were all going to be in town and able to show up at the court at 10 a.m. Because, you know, they've got speaking gigs. They've got classes to teach. And we're in April now, right? We're turning to April in our calendars? Uh, no, we could be in early mid-March. Mid-March? Okay. Why not? It's Super Bowl weekend, right? I'm going out on a limb and saying Thursday, March 28th. 
I want the record to reflect that Amy Howe is checking her planner literally (laughs) on screen to pick a day for the court right now. Amy's like, this looks good for you. I think you should pop this on your calendar. I'm going to be on vacation, so I'd really like them to wait for the 21st of March, if you're listening. (laughs) All right, but so now... Let's say late March. I just want to keep playing this out for listeners. Let's say midi, you know, tax day. Uh, they actually get an opinion out. That's too fast. If they actually take this case on the merits, you know, I mean, gosh, SB8, which they hustled as much as any case since Bush versus Gore. There was 10 days between when they granted SB8 and when they had oral argument. And it still took them 40 days to get out, you know, one opinion and one dig in the SB8 cases. So I think somewhere in the ballpark of five to six weeks is about as fast as the court is likely to move, maybe a bit faster in the Colorado case because of Super Tuesday. So I I think, you know, if you get a late March argument, you're looking at an early May decision. And if they affirm, if I'm reading the sort of Kremlinology of Judge Chutkin's orders correctly, maybe that configures itself to a late June, early July trial date. And she says six to eight weeks. Right. But it's not even Kremlinology because there's a chunk of time he's missed that she won't abridge. She won't curtail because it'll be due process problems. And and we're at 50 days already or whatever. So I think actually from the assumption you had, that would be pretty early. But let me just put it this way. It's clear, is it not, um, with everything going as fast as possible in the world in which the Supreme Court takes the case, there's a high likelihood that the case is being tried if it goes forward in the heat of the campaign. So as with everything else in Trump land, real precedent here, but what impact does this have you know, on the DC circuit, on the Supreme Court? Is there the possibility of reaching down from on high and saying, this is just too big a mess? I think from the justice's perspective, the immunity question is most of the ballgame. I mean, unless something goes really sideways in the trial itself, I think the court would be perfectly happy to sort of deal with the immunity question. And if the trial goes forward, let it be a criminal. I mean, they're going to have enough other stuff to worry about in October. I mean, we have not even started talking about all of the election cases that are going to fall on the court thanks to Moore versus Harper from last term. Thanks, Steve. (laughs) Another sigh, another sigh. (laughs) But just, Harry, to tie these threads together, right? I mean, if you are the median justices on the court, right, you are John Roberts, you are Brett Kavanaugh, you are Amy Coney Barrett. The one thing that I think the last 10 minutes hasn't quite done fully as I think they would is to put the immunity case in context with the other cases the court has, right? And I think the sort of the ability or the possibility that the court could on the same day or in relatively short order hand down two decisions that are not 6-3 ideologically divided, that don't have sharp, angry dissents, one of which keeps Trump on the ballot and one of which keeps his prosecution going forward. Like, that's the Super Bowl for John Roberts, right? Because he gets to say, look at us, right? You all suck at your jobs, right? Look at us speaking in, you know, one voice that is not necessarily rowing in one in the same direction in every case. Just umpires calling the balls and strikes. Thank you, Justice Kagan. And I have the opinion in the immunity case, right? We're really at the crux of it. And I think what listeners are especially interested in, let me just serve it up to 
both of you, Diane and Amy, for your thoughts on just this piece and Steve's comments. I mean, I think even before the D.C. Circuit issued its decision, even before the argument, it seemed like this was a really likely possibility that you'd have the court, you know, given what we knew about how hard it was going to be for the challengers to win in the Colorado case, that you could have this possibility of these two juxtaposed opinions. And as Steve said, you know, there is nothing that John Roberts would like more. And the only thing I would add is look at the rest of the board. Look at what else is coming down this spring, right? We've got Miffy, we've got Mtala. Like there, this is, you know, <laughs> this is going to be a term that feels a lot more like 2022 than 2023, which was, by the way, a big term. So I think that you are going to have, unless I'm mistaken, a raft of very, very angry, hot cases on issues that are tearing the country apart. And then you're going to be able to say, but on the two existential democracy cases, we all came together and spoke as one. And this is John Roberts, like Christmas in July. And he gets to buffer all of those roundups that say, look at how polarized and 6-3 the court is on abortion and guns and voting and all of the issues, because when it comes to democracy, they are protecting us. And I just think that that runs headlong into a, a very legitimate public desire that the court bring about accountability, meaningful accountability for Donald Trump. But as Amy says, that's not John Roberts' problem. Fireworks over the Supreme Court for several months. Everyone bring your picnic baskets. No three people I'd rather uh, be talking about it with. We are out of time for now, but hopefully uh, we four shall meet again as this huge stakes cases play out. We are out of time, but surely to return and soon to these two cases and the role of the Supreme Court in the 2024 election. Thank you so much, Amy, Dahlia, and Steve. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content. You can follow us on Twitter, at Talking Feds Pod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and are inclined to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Oh, and some exciting news. You can now leave voicemails with your questions for me and our guests, whether they're for Talking Five or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. All you have to do is call 727-279-5339 and leave a voice message. That's 727-279-5339. You can also email us your questions at questions at talkingfeds.com. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Catherine Devine. Associate producer, Meredith McCabe. Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Our research producer is Zeke Reed. Rosie Dawn Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. 
and production assistance by Akshaj Turbailu. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Lintman. Talk to you later.